the Gospel of Matthew. We finished our series on Providence last week. We're going to start a new brief series probably for another month. And we're going to talk about, in an overview, view, discipleship in the book of Matthew. In particular, there are five times that the phrase little faith is used by Jesus to describe his disciples. And uh, we're going to contrast that with a couple times it talks about a great faith and ask ourselves the questions throughout the next few weeks. Do you have a great faith or a little faith? And we're going to see what that actually means to be able to answer that question. Um, But Matthew chapter 6 is the one that we're going to be looking at tonight. I'll read the entire context. Matthew 6, 25 through 34. It reads, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why you are anxious about and why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field how they grow, they neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, Will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow. For tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. The Gospel of Matthew is bookended by a little phrase, with us or with you. And that's the whole thing. The whole thing is about Jesus or God being with his people again, which was lost under Adam and Eve, but restored through Jesus Christ. That's the story of it. And he comes to us in his birth as Emmanuel, and before he leaves and goes back to heaven, and there are no, there is no, it doesn't say anything about the ascension, it doesn't say anything about angels or clouds, but it does give a mission. And the mission is to go in the world and make disciples. The Gospels are many things, but let me tell you this, one of the main things they are are discipleship manuals. That is Jesus' last words. And he says, you know, I came so that you could be with me forever. But that has an end and a purpose way beyond what heaven is. And that is, I'll be with you as you go into the world and make disciples. Jesus did that his entire ministry before he, his public ministry for about three and a half years. He was making disciples And he wanted them to follow in his steps and do the exact same thing. 
there are four instances in his discipleship training with his own disciples. Four times in Matthew's gospel does Jesus leave them by themselves. And he does that, and he does that to you and I, because there's a test involved in following him. And that is, what will you do and how you, will you respond when his physical presence isn't there? Four times. And out of those four times, three out of those four are part of the five mentions of little faith. And what you'll find in these stories in Matthew's gospel is that his disciples pretty much failed miserably when he was not with them. But he wanted to mature them. He wants to grow them just like he does for you and me. And I think all of us tonight could tell stories about tumultuous events that took place in our lives that we thought, although theologically we know it's not true, that it seems like and it feels like that he isn't there. And I want you to ask yourself the question tonight and through this series, how do I respond? What kind of faith do I have when it seems like, when it feels like that he isn't here? Now, to set the context and stage for you, with these five stories of the disciples of Jesus being told by him they have little faith, in contrast, there are two stories, one of which the person is said to have had great faith, which is the complete opposite of it. And the other one, Jesus says, I haven't seen faith like this, not even in all of Israel. So he says, you know what? If I had to look at every person who's had faith, I've never seen one in Israel that had a greater one than this. Now, that is amazing because I want to tell you those two stories take place in Matthew 8 and one in Matthew 15. And the first one is a Roman centurion. And the second one is a Canaanite woman. And if you know anything about Israel's history and their present actually at the time, that the Roman is the present enemy of Israel and the Canaanites were the past enemies. The Roman is a soldier, he is a man. The Canaanite is a woman, right? So here's the point that Jesus says. Do you know who people who had the greatest faith are? You might be surprised if you read the gospel. They are not Jewish people. They are not men only. And they are not even the ones who followed Jesus and lived with him and knew him better than anybody else. Those were not the ones who were said had great faith. They were the ones who said, you have little faith. The great faith ones were not his immediate followers. They were not Jews. They were Gentiles. They were people that didn't even know the Bible very well at all. Which tells you this tonight as we embark on this series. Listen, you may see yourself as a person who probably is in the little faith category. But Matthew wants you to know that if you choose to trust Jesus and if you want to really follow him, you can. You can have great faith. And it doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter whether you're rich or poor, whether you have a great job or not, whether you have great education or if you know the Bible inside and out. See, Jesus says, listen, the people who had great faith are the people who can see me and most of all, hear and obey my words. That's who can have great faith. So as we go through this series, don't think and automatically say, oh, I'll always be the little faith person. Because you might be surprised 
Matthew says, about the people that God uses and express great faith. In our text, if you're not there again already, Matthew 6, 25 through 34, let me just give you a few facts about it. It's a text about worry. So here's lesson number one in our series. Ready? One of the things that attacks your faith so that you have little faith instead of great faith is worry. In our modern vernacular, we call it anxiety. Its emotional form usually is called neurotic, right? Its physical form is stress because it it affects us physically. And we have number one problem in America, the number one New York Times Times newspaper said is anxiety, worry. It's mentioned five times in our text, and three of them, verses 25, 31, and 34, beginning, middle, and end of this text, it is commanded of us by Jesus not to be anxious. Now, let me tell you this. If you've ever been, and I'm not asking you to raise your hand tonight, if you've ever had anxiety, if you've ever experienced anxiety in your life, if you've ever gone through times of worry and doubt and all that goes with it, you'll understand how difficult anxiety can be. In fact, I've seen people, and I'm using the term anxiety attacks, I've seen people that um, really begin to lose functionality. I've had people who were petrified to go anywhere or do anything because they were so controlled by anxiety. Um, In the text, anxiety was not just the first uh, 21st century problem in America. It was a first century problem in Israel. Um, They were taken over by Romans. Taxation was heavy. It was hard to make a living. It was very, very difficult. But as I read the text, and I'm not trying to be funny, Jesus gives a remedy for having anxiety. And it is not anything whatsoever that our world offers. Our world offers that the answer to worry and anxiety is some sort of a pill or a therapy or some sort of book or technique that you could use. Um, But here's what Jesus says in the text. He says, the answer to anxiety and worry is this, seek first the kingdom of God. Now, you're not going to find that in probably any books that you might read on the shelves at Barnes & Noble. (laughs) You're not going to hear any doctors say, oh yeah, here's your answer. Seek first the kingdom of God. But let me show you the the meat of this passage, because I want you to get it, and then I'm going to explain it to you in very good application and detail. The crux of this text is verses 32 and 33, and it's going to make a very strong contact, con- contrast to prove this point. Ready? He is going to tell you, and I'm, then I'm going to go back and do the arguments that Jesus used, but he's going to tell you first that the answer to anxiety and worry is an identity issue. It is based on who you are first. Anxiety is not first and foremost an external problem. It is not because you have pressure. It's not because you have difficult circumstances. It's not because your marriage isn't good or your boss is awful. Those are externals. It is your response to all of those things 
that causes anxiety. Because you know as well as I do, there are people who have the same circumstances or worse than you do and don't have any of the stress or anxiety that you share. What's the difference? It's not what happens on the outside, it's what happens on the inside. And Jesus is going to say the difference between people who handle anxiety and worry and who don't handle it well is not what they are on the outside, it's what they are on the inside. And here's the contrast. He contrasts and says, this, this is the way my disciples do it, and this is the way the Gentiles do it. Gentiles are, by large, unbelievers. So he's going to say, if you are a Christ follower, you're a disciple, then you have a different response to anxiety and worry than someone who is a Gentile and doesn't know and follow God. There should be a market difference. And that difference, he even outlines, he outlines it for us. And he says in the same, the same word in both verses, see it, seek, verse 32. For the Gentiles seek, circle that, after all these things. What are all these things? Clue, clothes, food, all those things that have been mentioned in this text. The basics of life. And your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. It's not that you don't care about, it's not that Christians and disciples, oh, I don't really care. I'm not worried about whether I get any food today. That's not that. He says, but in contrast, the favorite verse of everybody, which leaves 32 out, which is a shame because you can't understand 33 without 32. But in contrast, ready? But seek first the kingdom of God. The problem with anxiety and worry is about what you are seeking what you are pursuing. The word is used in some context in the Bible as an animal hunting down its prey. It's what you're all about. It's what you're after in life. Right? And he's going to tell us in a minute, and I'll come back to it. It's not just what you seek, but the proportionate measure in which you seek it. Because here's what he says. It's not just that you seek my kingdom and not this kingdom. No, there's a way to seek my kingdom. It has to be sought first, proportionately, all right? That's what he says to us. So here's the first thing. We don't respond like the world does to anxiety because we are not Gentiles. We're not like everybody else, not because we're superior, not because we're better, not because we don't feel pressure and anxiety. The word anxiety is not innately sinful. It is a word that Paul uses in 2 Corinthians 11 to say, and my deep concern for all the church. The word for anxiety is a deep concern. And in and of itself, it could be inherently good. Caring for churches is a great thing. Anxiety becomes sinful anxiety when you try to take control of that which is uncontrollable. That's where anxiety comes from. When we seek the wrong things in the wrong way. Now I'm going to be honest with you. Here's the application. Ready? We want power that God has. That's why we have anxiety. We want the power he has. If you look at verses 26 all the way through verse 32 that we read already you're going to find that God gives examples and arguments based on what he is doing. He is the one that clothes 
right? He puts clothes, he feeds the birds, he takes care of the lilies, he has the grass, he has, it's what he does, it's what the Father does. See, all of the things that you need are things that God does. And every time that you and I want power, we want control. We don't like to feel that we are totally dependent. We don't like to think that we couldn't do things on our own. See, it's God in the text who's omniscient. You know what the Bible says? And your Father knows that you have need of all these things. And then the Bible says, it's God who clothes them. Won't he clothe you? See, it's he has the power. He has the wisdom. He has the knowledge. And anxiety, listen, when you get anxious and controlled by worry, you are being God or divorcing yourself from God. Because he's the one who provides for you. He's the one that has the ability to do it. And the reason why we do that, listen... It's because we have the illusion somehow that we are in control. And I say it very particularly, illusion. We get anxious because we feel out of control. What we don't understand is we've never ever been in control. Never for a minute. You're not in control. I think of even recently with Amy. I text her all the time, and we were good friends the last four years, and I just texted Amy about living in the house and all the things, and she went through it, and, and Keith and her together, and she wasn't in control. She wasn't in control. She went to the hospital, and in the ambulance ride on the way over, she was talking to the people that were working on her. By the time she got to the hospital, she never talked ever again. See, we think we are in control. We have never been in control. It's always, our life is always out of our control. All of it. We don't keep, I learned this lesson, we don't keep our lives going. We don't. We never have. Never been in charge. That was my phrase for this week. I've never been in charge. Now, I think I am. I have this illusion that somehow that I'm in charge. I'm not. And we are, insecu we are insecure. Here's why. Because we want power and we really can never have enough to do it like God. I love the story Martin Luther who was, because of the Reformation and st standing up as being a Protestant, was hunted down by Catholics many times, trying to kill him. And one of his best friends, Philip McLaughlin, said to him, he was so worried about Luther, so worried about their lives, thinking they both were going to be captured, both killed, and how were they ever going to do all these things? And he was so frantic and he was panicking. And Luther looked at his friend and said, let Philip cease to rule the world. I love that little phrase. I had it in the book, the book that he wrote. Let Philip cease to rule the world. You know what he's telling him? Philip, stop trying to be God. You can't. You don't rule people. You don't rule things coming out. You don't rule anything. You're not in charge. Stop it. And Jesus wants to say tonight, that's how you overcome anxiety. You have to come to the realization 
You've never been in control. You're never in charge. And you're not. Not now, nor will you ever be. How in the world do I get to that place? Two things, Jesus says. If you want to have great faith, and not just little faith, when things around you would put you in stress and worry and doubt, and anxiety would overtake you, two things Jesus says. Number one, you have to change your thinking. In verse 626, depending on your version, in verse, chapter 6 and verse 28, he says, look at this. Or the King James, New King James, I think, says this. Consider the lilies. Consider, right, I think the earlier verse, consider the birds or the grass. Now, the word consider in verse 28 means this. To ponder and to think about it. Ready? Straight up talk. If you are anxious, you are not thinking kingdom ways. Number one, you're not thinking. Let's just stop there. You're not thinking, and you're certainly not thinking kingdom ways. Anxiety, write it down, is an absence of thinking straight, and mainly thinking straight about the kingdom. Here's what happens, and tell me if this isn't true in your life. When you are anxious and you're overcome with worry... What you're doing is listening to yourself. You're listening to your heart. And if you don't know this by now, and no matter how old you are, you should know this. That when you get into trouble and you get in difficulties and things get stressful, you talk to yourself. And probably mostly, I hope anyways, not out loud. But if you're foolish to think that you don't talk to yourself, we do. The question is, do you listen to yourself? And do you talk back? We need to preach the gospel to ourselves. That's what I've been reading in a book, one of the books. Preach the gospel to ourselves all the time. Because anxiety is characteristic of people who listen to their heart instead of talking to their heart. And so when your heart starts telling you, this is going to be bad, and you better do this, and let me tell you this, this is going to be... This isn't going to work out. And this is going to be the worst thing that ever happened. And you should be so upset with yourself. What do you say back? What do you say back? Talking to your heart. That's why you have to be able to have, and I'll show you in a minute, the arguments of this text Jesus gives to talk back to yourself. To talk back to your heart that wants to control. Because anxiety cannot be stopped if you do not talk back to yourself with God's word. So you, here's why we memorize verses. Not because so we can stand up in front and let everybody know, look, I can memorize verses. I was told when I was growing up, and I did it for a number, a year, that you should learn five verses in scripture for every major issue that you have problems with. And so to this day, believe it or not, I did that as a teenager. I can quote still to this day almost all of them because they were so helpful. But it's not magical. Jesus doesn't quote verses to Satan in the temptation and then just magically the words he says it and they go away. No, you believe them. You hold on to them. Those promises are what you really think like and you act upon them. That's what makes them real. And Jesus says, let me tell you, arguments that you have to have if you're going to have right thinking. There are two. Just write them down. They are the birds of the air argument. 
And they are the grass of the field argument. The birds of the air argument is verse 26, and it's the providence of God, which we've already talked to, so I won't go too long on that. The second one is the grass of the field argument, and it's different than the first one. The first one's about the providence of God. This is about the love of God. So here's what he says in verse 26. He says, look at the birds of the air. Here's the argument. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns. In other words, they're not planning ahead. (laughs) They don't have retirement funds and 401k. He says, and yet, see that? And yet, your heavenly Father feeds them. See that? Providence. He brings the rain, the worms come out. He brings help to them. And he feeds them. He uses things. He doesn't just say, hey, bird seed from heaven. No, he uses weather and things in the earth to feed them. So providentially, God says, they don't plan anything. But I take care of them. I feed them, he says. And then he says this. See, ready? here's the argument. Aren't you more valuable than they are? Do you get what he's saying? Say this to yourself, Jesus says. Say it to yourself. You ever see, oh, there's an epidemic of birds and they're all dying because they're homeless and they don't have any food. And we have, no, you, you never hear that happening. Right? He says, and if I can take care of them and I made you and you're my image, don't you think I can do that? For, do you see what he says? Preach to yourself. Preach to yourself. See, it's not about you and how great you are and you can come up with an answer and can you do all these. It's not because you shouldn't be part of the solution. But here's what he's saying. But when you try to be the only solution, it may not be enough. And he'll take care of you. He'll take care of you. Proverbs says, you've never seen the righteous begging bread. And it's not because there are people who die of malnutrition and don't have it. It's a general principle. God knows, he knows your needs and he will give you what you absolutely need. But you have to let him determine what you need, of course. So here's what the Bible is trying to teach you. That you have to learn to trust God. His invisible hand of providence. That he will provide when you need it, how you need it, and according to what he says that you need. How do you learn to trust God? Ready? Stop putting yourself at the center of the universe. That's how. You seek first, first. Not your kingdom, because Gentiles do that. His kingdom. You put him first, above all else, and believe that he's omnipotent, he can provide, and he is omniscient. The Father knows that you need all these things. Stop trying to be omnipotent and omniscient yourself. Interesting that the second argument is the grass of the field argument. And in verse 28 he says, I'm sorry, and why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies or the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. But I tell you, even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these, he says. See, God can clothe you, God can provide for you. But listen, it's not just because he's the omnipotent, omniscient God, transcendent, can do anything in his way out there. Did you read this text? The beginning of this text in verse 26 and the end of this text, you know what God is called? Your father. 
Only to John's gospel and the entire Bible does any book use God's name as Father more than Matthew. Here's what he wants you to know. God is not just on the throne, not just sovereign, dictating what your needs will be and meeting them and testing you and trying. It's not some God way out there doing all these things. No, he is your Abba. He's your Father. Your Father, he says, knows that you have need of all of these things. He knows it. That's the love argument. God says, don't you think that I love you? Now, every time, same thing come up in the disciples, another, oh, you little faith passage. The winds were howling, beating the boat. They thought they were going to sink. And they said, Jesus, get up. Why? Don't you think, don't you know we're perishing? You know what that is? I don't trust that you love me. You know why people, you know what they say when they get anxious? I don't think you have my best interests in mind. Because, God, if you really love me, you wouldn't have brought me here. You wouldn't have let this happen. This would never have gone in my children's life. And this would never have happened in my marriage. I would never would have lost that job. And if you really love me, those are all things that when you're captivated by anxiety and worry. And I can tell you this, to be straight with you again, that's offensive to God's love. He says later on in chapter 7 and verse 11, If you being evil, if you being evil fathers... Know how to give good gifts to your children. How much more do you think your heavenly father will give to you? Oh, see, he says, if you're evil and sinful, but yet you know how to give good things to your children, what do you think I'm going to do? Do you see the argument? Preach it to yourself. Don't let yourself think, oh, look at this. Look what's happening in my life, and I don't know what I'm going to do. God must not love me. See, you've got to preach to yourself and tell yourself. Use the love God, the God's love argument. He's my father. I can trust my father. Now, when I was about hmm, six years old, we belonged to this swim club thing. And uh, my dad thought it was time that I really took lessons, swimming lessons, because I'd never done it before. And I'd always gone to, but I'd never gone in my over in my head. And so he said, we're going to do it. He says, but we don't need those swim teacher people and pay all that money. I'm going to teach you. And, you know, I didn't know anybody. I sounded good. So we go in the pool with all these people, and there's a lifeguard and everything. And my dad jumps in the pool in the deep end, and he goes halfway across the pool. He says, your first lesson is you trust me. I won't let you go under. I go, you got to be kidding me. <laughs> and so he says, jump in and swim to me. I, I just, as a six-year-old, right, I said quietly, you know, I don't know how to swim. <laughs> That's the point of all of this, right? He goes, trust me. So I said no. And so he swam over to the side of the pool. He says, he got close to me. My dad didn't take no very well. He says, I'm your dad, and I love you, and you will jump in the pool. <laughs> he swam back out to the middle. And so he got back out. He goes, go ahead and jump. I go, No. <laughs> see I never in my life would have ever done that to him because I knew what was waiting at home when I got there but I was more afraid of drowning than my dad and I didn't do it so he came to the pool one more time and he says he didn't say anything else he said jump now <laughs> he swam back I jumped <laughs> I jumped in the pool and as soon as I hit the water I hadn't even hardly gone under nothing I was screaming like I was going to die 
The lifeguard got off his chair. My dad went <laughs> like that and said no. And my dad came up to me and grabbed me and pulled me out of the water. He goes, why didn't you trust me? He wasn't upset. He was offended that, he, that I think for a moment, right, that he wouldn't take care of me. Listen, when you get anxious and worried, you know what God says? It's offensive. You don't think I care about you? You don't think I'm going to meet your needs? You don't, you don't think I can do that, he says? Preach to yourself. Preach to yourself. Preach to, see this? That God's invisible hand has it all under control and you don't. And say this to yourself. He is my father. I wrote it down. He is my father. He knows what I need. He knows exactly what I need. So number one, change your thinking. Number two, quickly change your priorities. Mary and Martha were in the same house when Jesus showed up in Luke 10. And you know, Mary sat at Jesus' feet and heard his word. And it says this, Martha was distracted with many things. And it's a word that literally means to be pulled in pieces in a different direction. We'd say like taffy. And so she was all about this, and she was worried about this, and, and she got so mad, she had to do all this stuff. She was frantic, and she even told Jesus, can't you tell my sister to get up and give me some help? You know what Jesus says? Oh, you know what anxiety comes from? Worry is always a lack of proportionate values. He says, you know what your problem is, Martha? You know why you're worried? Because you don't value sitting at my feet and prizing my word enough. So you're worried about all these other things, and not because they're not important, but they're not as proportionally as valuable as sitting in front of me, he says. So I wrote down, if Jesus is at the center of your life and you are listening and obeying his word, there won't be any anxiety. That's why he can tell you, stop doing it. You know why he can command you? Because if you make him the center and hear his words, you won't have any. So he commands you, stop it by putting me at the center of your life. But every time he's not, and you put anything else at the center of your life, you will be rocked by anxiety. You put a, I put a list down. You put your job and your career and having to make money and pay your bills, you put that at the center of your life. If you teach your kids that grades are everything, and you put that in the pressures of all that and getting the, if you put that at the center of their lives, you are asking for them to have stress and anxiety beyond what they could possibly handle because anxiety always comes from a lack of proportionate values. So Jesus says it so clearly, don't do it because you're not a Gentile. Don't seek after those things as make them first. Make my kingdom first. My righteousness, he says. My kingdom, my righteousness, not theirs. You're not one of them, you're one of mine. And that would mean this, so if he's first, Prayer would be proportionally important more than entertainment. You should never have problem praying if proportionately you're seeking the kingdom first. So I would turn the TV off and I would stop reading that book or whatever, and then I would pray because that is first proportionately. So fellowship with other Christians. And I would tell them in the youth ministry, when I was a youth pastor, I would tell them, you may have to do all these other sports. They are not proportionally matters as much as 
God and being with his people. So you being here on Wednesday night for church with a youth group is way more important than you being on some sports team. And I was crazy about sports. You know what's proportionally more important? Your ministry and your mission. Your spiritual growth comes way before, you know all this, right? Way before anything else that you might be able to think of. But it has to come first. See, anxiety is a choice between, is it you first or God first? Is it your kingdom first, his kingdom? That's the choice anxiety always makes. I have found it's one thing to believe in God. It's quite another thing to believe God. Because if you believe God and he said, seek my kingdom first, then you would believe his word. That he says, I can clothe you, I can feed you, I can take care of you. See, I believe in him, but do you believe him when he says those things? Because you could trust him if you did. If you were a young adult and still unmarried, you could trust him to wait for someone who's not only saved but godly. But you'd have to trust him to do that. You'd have to put his kingdom first and say, I know everybody else in this kingdom says do this first, not me, I'm waiting. And you could come up with a whole long list of things that would give evidence about which kingdom really is first. But see, it's a matter of values. See, it's whether you'll have kingdom thinking and you'll have kingdom values proportionately in your life. It matters for you as a dad, as a mom, as a parent of children. You're teaching your kids by the way that you live your life which kingdom really matters. You can say this kingdom here, but if you go home and by your thinking and how you look through problems and how you handle worry and what your values really are, see, you're telling your kids it's one thing to do this and to do another thing when no one else is around. Your faith tonight, your faith, is it great or is it small, little? Let's pray. Ah, Father, help us. Help us. There's not a person in this room, not a one, who can say they never have been worried or anxious. And there's not a person in this room who can say they've never been sinfully worried or anxious. But there are probably many people in this room who haven't found out the cause of it and what to do about it yet. Father, we need to put your kingdom first. And that means a change of thinking and values and priorities. Oh, Lord, it's so easy to be a Gentile. It's so easy to talk like a Christian and act like you're not. And Father, it catches up to us. It takes over emotionally, physically, financially, in so many ways. And it just brings devastation. Father, I pray tonight that we believe your words and that we would take them to heart and we would do what it takes in our marriages, in our family, with our kids, in our own lives to know what it truly means to seek your kingdom first. Help us to that end. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.